MailChimp presents. As a marketer, you're speaking to a vast audience. Some people need to be converted into customers, some need to be reunited with their carts, and others have just made a purchase. But when you fail to segment your audience and personalize your messaging, you can get what's called a customer. One big cluster of customers who may seem alike, but actually all have different behaviors. So how do you turn those customers back into customers? With Intuit MailChimp, you can use personalization tools that segment customers into groups, break them up into like-minded target audiences, and send them personalized marketing. Intuit MailChimp, the number one email marketing and automations brand. Based on competitor brands' publicly available data on worldwide numbers of customers in 2021 and 2022. Availability of features and functionality vary by plan, which are subject to change. We're not in the positions yet of leadership and power, but we do have that indispensable element of criticizing and constructive protest. In 1969, Hillary Rodham, then just 21, stood in front of her graduating class at Wellesley College as its first-ever student commencement speaker. She was calm, collected, very confident in her words. And her speech touched on themes that she would echo in the coming decades of her political career, challenging the status quo, conquering fear, and facing the future. Fear is always with us, but we just don't have time for it. Not now. Looking back, it's easy to trace a line from this moment to her future career in politics. But... It almost didn't happen. I'm Ann Friedman, and this is Going Through It, a show about how hard it can be to figure out when to quit and when to keep going. Four years before that commencement speech, Hillary Rodham left home and moved almost a thousand miles away, far from everything that was familiar. Far from her parents, her small community that made her feel like a superstar, especially academically, and she began her first year at Wellesley College, a place she never expected would bring out her deepest insecurities. I was emotional because I was basically telling them that I can't succeed here, it's too hard, I don't want to stay, I want to come home. On this episode, what happens when you're afraid you can't hack it and you're tempted to just give up? Can you take me back to the moment when you first set foot on campus and tell me what that was like? I was excited, but also really apprehensive. My father and mother drove me. They took me to Wellesley, which is a beautiful campus uh, in a suburb of Boston, and dropped me off at my dorm. And there I was. I didn't know anybody. I walked down the hall the first time to use the restroom at the end of the hall, and I walked by an open door, and there was this exotic-looking 18-year-old girl there with really, really long blonde hair and a beauty mark on her cheek and an accent I couldn't place. And within three minutes, I learned she spoke fluent French, and she had traveled the world, and it was, you know, a shock to have the first person I met seemed to be so much more worldly and uh, ready to tackle uh, college at Wellesley than I certainly felt. And next to this woman, what did you look like at that age, and what did you feel like? Well, I wore glasses. 
I also had long hair because everybody did, but it certainly wasn't as blonde or shiny as her hair. I didn't have much of a wardrobe. I didn't really care that much about clothes. And I was looking, you know, much more like a typical college freshman, not quite sure what I was doing there. How did it feel like once you got into your classes? I did not feel at all prepared. I, uh, we had to take um, a language. I signed up for French. I was totally lost, remained lost for two years until the French teacher told me that my talents lay elsewhere. And once I finished the requirement, I should uh, pursue some other field. Uh, the uh, math and science courses were really hard, and I had done well in science, but this was at a different level. I was feeling both socially um, out of place and overwhelmed by the academic uh, load and level of you know, expectation. And so I was distraught and disappointed and thinking that maybe I should just leave because I was never going to be successful. Did it get to a point where you actually did want to leave school? I did. In fact, uh, I lived in a dorm. I had a single room, and there were uh, phone booths, old-fashioned phone booths that were available for students. So, yeah, I was in one of those phone booths. I called my parents, collect. This was maybe a month, six weeks into being there. And I said that I just didn't think I could make it. I was emotional because I was basically telling them that I can't succeed here. It's too hard. I don't want to stay. I want to come home. My father, who never wanted me to be that far away anyway, said, okay, come home. He said, you can get a job and then you can, you know, go back to college somewhere near next year. And my mother said, no, you have to stick it out. And if you still feel that way, uh, at the end of the year, we can talk about it, but you can't be a quitter. You have to stay. Why did you listen to your mother and not your father? Well, because I think my mother understood me a lot better. I think my mother understood that any new experience is going to be rocky, uh, whether people admit it to themselves or not. I was admitting that it was rocky and I didn't think that I could do it. Mm. And the idea that somebody would have the chance to go to this great school and walk out on it because it didn't work out exactly as you had expected or hoped was just unacceptable uh, to her. Because I'm sure she thought, boy, if I'd been 18 years old and I'd had a chance to go to that college, it w you know, they would have had to drag me out of there. What are you saying? You, you think you uh, want to leave? Absolutely not. You're going to stick it out and you're going to get your head in the game and you're going to do better. And did it feel like a pep talk? Like when you when you hung up that phone, were you like, all right, I'm going to do this? No, it was an ultimatum. It wasn't a pep talk. <laughs> <laughs> it was, you are going to stay and you are going to do better. And if you still don't like it at the end of the year, we can talk about it. Uh, yeah, there was, it wasn't a pep talk. Which actually was exactly the right thing to say because – you know, she couldn't say, oh, I loved my college years since she didn't go to college. Or, oh, I remember how bad it was. I was a little, you know, uh, off balance, too. She couldn't say any of those things. She just was appalled that somebody with the opportunities that I'd been given might be a quitter. 
And I was just going to have to apply myself and work harder and try to do better and feel uh, that this was more of the place uh, for me. I, I had developed good friends, people that I really uh, cared about, that I stay in touch with to this day, and I think became more forthcoming with them about how hard some of this was. And of course, then they began telling me how hard things were for them, and, and slowly the mask of trying to show the world that you were doing just fine began to uh, disappear, and, and there was a real community of people who were all in it together. This process of your early years there, kind of realizing how hard it was, and then realizing that you couldn't quit, and then realizing that everyone else was struggling in the same way, what, what did that reveal to you about yourself or about the world? New experiences are always testing grounds. I heard a great phrase the other day that paraphrased is, part of life is finding your comfort zone and then staying out of it. <laughs> uh, and I'd been in a comfort zone. If you do things that are new and different, even something as predictable as going to college, you do learn about yourself. You do learn about resources that you have and resilience and determination that can begin to uh, be called upon to keep you going. You also get sort of moments of epiphany. I remember really clearly that the first time I felt like, wow, I love this place and I'm gonna stay here was in late November, early December when we had one of these massive snowfalls that just blanketed the entire campus and it was so beautiful. And the then president of Wellesley came to our dorm asking for volunteers to help her gently shake the snow off of the uh, branches and leaves of a lot of the trees so that they wouldn't break from the weight. And it was a clear night and the moon was bright and we were going through you know, knee-high snow, gently shaking the snow off. And I thought, wow, this is, this is a a perfect place to be in a perfect time in my life, and I'm going to make the most of every opportunity that I have. That's so romantic, <laughs> that scene. Well, it was beautiful. Yeah. It was absolutely beautiful. So many of us have heard the commencement speech that you gave um, as valedictorian a few years later. I'm wondering who you were at this point and how you were different from your freshman year. Not only did I change and grow, mature, um, but the country went through so much. Obviously, I showed up at Wellesley in the autumn of 1965. Uh, President Kennedy had been assassinated. The following four years were filled with turmoil uh, and challenge, everything from you know, the Vietnam War heating up, uh, the civil rights uh, revolution taking off, the assassinations of Dr. King and Senator Kennedy. I mean, it was just one body blow after another that we were living through. Uh, and I found my voice, which led to my classmates asking me to give that speech at our graduation. The question about possible and impossible was one that we brought with us to Wellesley four years ago. We arrived not yet knowing what was not possible. Consequently, we expected a lot. Our attitudes, 
are, con are easily understood, having grown up, having come to consciousness in the first five years of this decade, years dominated by men with dreams, men in the civil rights movement, the Peace Corps, the space program. So we arrived at Wellesley, and we found, as all of us have found, that there was a gap between expectation and realities. But it wasn't a discouraging gap, and it didn't turn us you know, into cynical, bitter old women at the age of 18. It just inspired us to do something about that gap. They ask us quite often, why, if you're dissatisfied, do you stay in a place? Well, if you didn't care a lot about it, you wouldn't stay. It's almost as though um, my mother used to say, you know, I'll always love you, but there are times when I certainly won't like you. There are things you should walk away from in life. I'm not saying that every experience you start, it is imperative that you see it through. But I knew that for me, it would have been uh, a big blow and a, a psychological uh, you know, defeat if I had walked away uh, when I was you know, 17, 18 years old. We are, all of us, exploring a world that none of us understands and attempting to create within that uncertainty. But there are some things we feel, feeling that a prevailing, acquisitive, and competitive corporate life, including tragically the universities, is not the way of life for us. We're searching for a more immediate, ecstatic, and penetrating mode of living. And so our questions are questions about our institutions, about our colleges, about our churches, about our government continue. The questions about those institutions are familiar to all of us. But along with using these words, integrity, trust, and respect, in regard to institutions and leaders, we're perhaps harshest with them in regard to ourselves. One of the most tragic things that happened yesterday, a beautiful day, was that I was talking to a woman who said she wouldn't want to be me for anything in the world. She wouldn't want to live today and look ahead to what it is she sees because she's afraid. Fear is always with us, but we just don't have time for it. Not now. Thanks. Forty-eight years later, in 2017, Hillary Clinton returned to Wellesley College to give the commencement address. It was about her optimism for the future. Going Through It is an original series from MailChimp. I'm your host, Anne Friedman, and it takes a village of producers to make this podcast, including Eleanor Kagan, Megan Tan, Gabrielle Lewis, and Claire Tai. This episode was edited by Joel Lovell. It was scored and mixed by Hannes Brown. Thanks to my miracle bro, Max Linsky, and everyone at Pineapple Street Media. On the next episode, what are the limits of self-reliance? So yeah, you can't can't fuck over your network. Who's gonna hire you after that? <laughs> Truly, you're like, yeah, no. CISO went, CISO folded, so I moved to the desert. By the way, this is also my haircut. <laughs> Do you have any work for me? <laughs> I'm gay and I'm loud and I'm like really feminist and I like never, I never shut up and I only say exactly what I think. Uh. And also, I don't complete my projects. Is that fine? <laughs> are, you, did, are you good with that? 
comic Cameron Esposito tells me about how she got the biggest break of her career, a TV show, only to have the network shut down and leave her in limbo. 